You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Money. What does the Bible say about it? We recognize our need for it to live and function in the world, but how should we manage it? Maybe a better question is, are we managing it? Or is money mastering us? As Christians, we recognize how we view or manage money cannot save us. Even our most generous acts cannot save us. Christ alone saves us through the most lavish generosity of all time, where he laid down his life as a sacrifice on the cross. Though our charity and how we manage money cannot save us, it speaks to how much we understand the generosity of God giving us his son so we can be reconciled to him for eternity. Therefore, money becomes an excellent diagnostic tool to identify where our heart is, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Good morning, my name is Ronnie. I'm one of the elders at Gospel Community Church, and it is my privilege and honor to bring you God's word this morning. We're continuing, as you just saw, our series on money. So if you want to go ahead and find a Bible and open up to 1 Timothy 4.13, we're going to go all the way to 5.22. And, and this morning specifically, we're going to be looking at a couple ways in which we've been called to love and serve one another inside the body of Christ and even inside of our own families. If you're a guest, as Brad was saying earlier, our whole aim and goal here is to lift up and make Jesus a hero. So our goal is to point people to Jesus, not to any one person, not to Rick, not to Brad, not to myself, not to any individual ministry, but everything we do is pointing up and exalting Jesus for what he's done in rescuing us. And in First in Timothy, in the context of what we're looking at today, this is incredibly applicable because Paul had initially sent Timothy to Ephesus because of some false teaching that was going on. These false teachers had crept into the church and instead of doing what we've been called to do, which is to point to Jesus, is they were pointing people away from one another. They were introducing all different kinds of divisions and, and weird odd speculations and myths and genealogies, as you see from the first chapter of Timothy. And, and in a sense, yes, doctrine should divide. As R.C. Sproul so famously said, it divides truth from error. And it should divide unbelievers from believers in a sense. But there's no eternally meaningful way in which what we speculate and pontificate about the scriptures should be dividing and driving believers away from one another. There are times where in which we worship in separate buildings, in separate churches because of different issues on perhaps infant baptism. You know, if you, if you believe in infant baptism, we're a believer's baptism church, so maybe it wouldn't make sense to come and worship with that particular family. But from an eternal perspective, there's no real reason that we should be divided in our call to lift up and make Jesus a hero and point the world to him and what he's done for us. So the letter's designed to bring unity amongst God's people and order to their church. And while all the Bible is about the gospel, this is about a very specific component of the gospel. It's about reconciliation. This is what the gospel is about. It's about putting back together what's been broken. The gospel is most important, our restored relationship to God, yes, but it also has a horizontal relationship where in which it's bringing people back together, restoring relationships between humanity. 
As a matter of fact, this was the identifying mark that Jesus said people would be able to look at Christians and identify them as his disciples. Jesus says in John 13, 35, that it's the love we have for one another that people will look and say, oh, you must be a disciple of Jesus. So it's a gospel that actually changes the way in which we relate to one another. There's actually peace. There's actually forgiveness. There's unity. There's relationship between humanity. So we're going we're gonna to look at that. We're going to look at how we've been called to handle money and how we serve and love one another, how we take care of those in our immediate family and also in the church family. So I'll read 1 Timothy 4 through 13, uh, 413 through 522. It's a long section, but we'll get through this. So 1 Timothy 4.13, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we do have some that you can take, like if you don't have one at all, like no Bible at all, there are some back on the connect table that's a gift from Gospel Community Church to you. You can take it home, you can write your name in it, you can highlight it, that, that is our gift to you. So 1 Timothy 4.13, he instructs Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, check, to exhortation, to teaching, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Chapter 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for the relatives and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying that they should not, what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep that you've mouth pure. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that you've given us to instruct us in, in how to live and how to love and serve one another, how to go about the operations of the ministry, that it's not just left up to our own feelings or subjective interpretations of how we should do life and life with one another, but you've actually taught us practically what it looks like to live out the commands that you've given us, to live out the call we have in Christ to love one another, 
to show that same love that you had for us, whether it be for our enemies or our strangers or those close to us. I pray that we'd be able to emulate that same love that you had for us when you went to the cross and all we do. Guide us this time. Lead us this time. Let your word be what guides us in, in ministry. And I pray you would open our hearts to receive what you had for, this, for us this day. We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for some context, because we're, we're no longer in Exodus, we are taking a little bit of a break, a little bit easier to follow along as we're going through a book. I know we're kind of jumping, we have this small series, so we're jumping right in the middle of Timothy. This is like smack right in the middle of chapter four. So for some context, I mentioned Paul sends Timothy to this mission out to Ephesus, and the mission and the purpose was to devote himself, it says in verse 13, to the public teaching, to the reading of scripture. Read the scriptures to them encourage them to live according to those scriptures, and then teach them how to remain faithful to those truths that have been communicated to them. In verse 14, it says it, it, there's a call from Paul to, the, to Timothy to not neglect the gift that God has given him. And we can assume from what Paul says here in 13 and, and 14, he was gifted in the reading of scriptures. He was gifted in teaching people these things. He was gifted in exhorting them in how to live faithfully. This was a good teacher to send to Ephesus where there had been all this false teaching that had crept in. And it says, do not neglect. Scripture and what is most practical should always guide us in ministry and in life with what I hope is obvious to all that Scripture stands as an authority over what we consider to be most practical at times. And what do you think it would mean for Timothy to neglect these gifts that God had given him? If you owned a large company or a large business operation, you were the leader. You had started it, initiated the business, and were running the operations. If you were to neglect such things as strategic planning or vision casting or creating company traditions and cultures or creating company-wide communication processing for things like uh, customer service, fulfillment, purchasing, sales, management, hiring, or any number of things that could be outsourced to other people, it, it would be a detriment to your business. If you're the, the visionary, the leader, the one who started this and got this off the ground as the one leading the ship, there are some things that would, it would be wise to ensure that there were other people that these would be able to be outsourced to, but to neglect some of those other things that the leader of an operation is to be doing would be to the detriment of the business. So to have Timothy do something else other than what God is, what God has clearly gifted him for, so much so that the Apostle Paul is confirming the gifts that he sees in Timothy and says, I'm commissioning you go to go to Ephesus because of what I see in you. So it would be detrimental to the church for him to neglect this. So if he, if he I would argue if he did some kind of bivocational thing, which if you don't know what that means, that would mean like working outside the church, whether full-time or part-time in order to support him in ministry. I think it would be to the detriment to what God has gifted him to do. Now, the Apostle Paul has done this, done that very thing at times, whether it was because out of need or whatever. And even uh, if you know the, the, the pastor who basically, uh, the founding pastor of Gospel Community Church, Rick Reeves, he did that for a while. When first moving to Eugene, he actually worked for a company he was working by vocationally. But eventually we got to a place where it was more sensible and feasible to have him come into full-time ministry. It, it would divide Timothy's attention and lead to some level of neglecting of the gifts. If Timothy and our clergy have been blessed by God to do the work of ministry, we need to ensure that they're not neglecting those gifts. And, and I say this in full confidence it's, as someone who does work bivocationally, for, for, some time, for some people, it works great. It's fine. 
myself and even Jake, so two out of the four elders, we work bivocationally, but I would not want all my elders in any church I'm ever a part of to be working bivocationally. To, at some level, there will be some form of neglect. Because look at verse 15 and 16 and what Paul calls Timothy to do when he goes to Ephesus and consider these things. I believe Timothy is a man of a craft. He's called to sharpen this craft through practicing and immersing himself in it, working diligently to remain faithful to the gifts that he's given and the calling he has on his life. Look at the words used in 15 and 16, the verbs with which Paul has commissioned Timothy to practice. It says 15, 16, practice, immerse, progress, persist. This is work. This is a career. Now, some people may have the financial advantage to not work, whether they're like independently wealthy or some, you know, maybe they have a trust fund or something they can go. The truth of that matter is that could be very true of false teachers. There could be false teachers that are independently wealthy to come in, but we want someone who is faithful to his call to combat false teaching and bring the gospel to bear in teaching and preaching and counseling that is funded through the ministry, funded through the people who sit in the pews who are holding them accountable to that teaching. So we have some kind of responsibility in that, which I'll talk about later. But we want them to be well-equipped in these things, if possible, without divided interest. If possible. Obviously, in Scripture, we have different examples of ways in which Paul's ministry itself was funded, whether in Acts 18, where Paul's working as a tent maker kind of part-time, but we see other times, like in Philippians 4, where there's actually a different church from a different region that is sending him a gift so that he can do the work of ministry. And we need to be funding these things because the local church and paying the pastors uh, so that they can do the things in verse 16 that he's called to do, keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. The goal is to keep them in the faith, keep them strong in the faith, and leading others to Christ, but also equipping the saints for the ministry. What we, that, that's the call of the elders in Ephesians 4.12. And, and, and elders are what we call in the military, or the term we have is like, we call them force multipliers. One man is only expected to do so much. A couple people working full-time on staff are expected to do so much. But when it comes to the practical work of discipleship and evangelism out into the world and how we care for our families and, and in our marriages and show the light of Christ out into the world, uh, they are the force multipliers that are equipping the saints to the teaching, to the preaching, to the different cohorts we run, and, and even the counseling when we experience uh, different problems in our life to help equip us to go and do that same work. And it's funny the book that Rick, I, I don't know if Brad is, you know, I'm, I'm blanking, I don't know if Brad has preached on the money series yet, but uh, no, okay. Well, Rick has brought up this book a couple times. I think it's required reading for membership, and I finally did read it. He kept saying it was like a 30-minute book, like a 30-minute read, and it is. And honestly, I would highly suggest you read the book. It's free in the back, so you have no excuse, 30 minutes. You could go back there, pick this up. If you are a Christian, been walking with God for a while, there are a couple nuggets in here that I think will go with you for quite a while. Uh, there's a couple things that you'll carry in the back of your mind as you continue on in the faith. But it's funny what he says, I think it's on page 43, and I'll pull it up because you know, I'll quote it directly. He's talking about giving to different organizations. There's all different kinds of worthy nonprofits in the world, amen? There's different kinds of things that you could be giving your money towards. There's, there's people that feed the homeless. There's people that help build shelters. I just had Habitat for Humanity come over to my neighbor's house and fix, them with, fix their fence. So there's all different kinds of worthy causes we could be giving to. And he says this. He says, finally, there is no reason why all you're giving as an individual should be to Christian organizations, which is funny that he says no reason because in the very next sentence, he goes on to give what I think is a very good reason. He says, but keep in mind that while non-Christians will also fund other worthy organizations, only Christians will fund the work of the gospel. That is to say, 
Unbelievers will continue to fund all different kinds of worthy organizations that a believer, a, a believer might also give to, like some of the things I mentioned, helping feed people, helping give people clean water, helping teach people. Unbelievers will give so that people have bread, but they have no vested interest in giving so that people will have the bread of life. They, they will give intentionally to something that will feed people for a day, but they have no intention of, of giving to the advancement of the gospel and the building of God's kingdom here on earth. They may give out of compulsion because they're in on a Sunday service and they feel like throwing 20 bucks in the plate, but they have no invested interest in seeing the kingdom of God here grow. And I have my own reasons for keeping my, my giving within the local church. I have at times given to different Christian organizations, but we, I think we're also called to be good stewards. You look at something like the parable of talents in Matthew 25, when the, when the master gives different talents to different people and we see how it was used. And the thing about ministry specifically within the local walls of the church, many times people, if they do give the different worthy organizations, it's, it's like a check and then it's gone. And we may not know all of what's going on there, but in the local church, there's actually an active participation that's happening. Whether you're a member or not, everybody's invited to come and sit in on our church membership meetings where there's an opportunity to hear Brad go over the budget. And you can even ask him questions and send him an email. I'm sure he'd be more than willing to ask, answer any inquiries into that kind of thing. So there's an active participation and, and guarding over what is actually taking place. You see the functions and the operations of the church, so it's not a careless check that's written to an organization where in which you don't know all of what they're doing, where every dime is going and how it's being allocated, but there's an opportunity for you to actually be a good steward and watch and see how things are being done. Who's in the pulpit? Who are we commissioning as elders? When the church is meant to come together and confirm someone as an elder, you take an active role in determining whether or not they have been called by God to step into that role. Are they going to remain faithful to the call of the gospel? Or are they going to deviate from what they've been called to? We need to make sure we have the capacity to fulfill our role as church on earth. Teaching and equipping the gospel, yes, but also true religion. As James talks about in 127, in which Paul transitions now into chapter 5. He speaks of the way in which we're supposed to treat one another. How we're supposed to talk to one another in verses 1 through 16. In the process of teaching, encouraging, rebuking, we're to treat one another as family. And that even comes down to the way we talk with one another. Look at verse 1 and 2 in chapter 5. We speak to older men in the church as fathers. We speak to older women in the church as we would our mother, with respect, with kindness, with reverence. We're called to speak to younger men, younger women, as sisters and brothers because the church is a family. We've been united to God and a part of his family now, so we're, we are in the family of God. It's funny, there's a, there's a term, many people probably heard it, blood is sicker than water. It's not used as often nowadays, but many people know this term, blood is sicker than water, which is funny. That phrase has gone through some semantic changes over the years. It actually means something different now than what it used to mean. We say blood is sicker than water. I mean, like, if you're my birth brother, we're related biologically, then I'm supposed to care about you more than anyone else out in the world, right? That's what, that's what typically it means. But originally, it meant like the blood of a covenant. A blood of a covenant was supposed to be more meaningful than the, than the water of birth. So if you made some kind of covenant, that was supposed to be more meaningful, and the original usage would actually better represent our relationship to our brothers and sisters in Christ now. And when it comes to families, we're far removed from this reality now, but all throughout human history, there have been many families completely snubbed out, family lines, family names cut out from the, the, the branch of human history that has gone out. There have been many branch and family lines that have been cut off left and right. Consider the 17th century John Owen, my favorite, my favorite theologian, who was married in 1644 to a woman named Mary Rook, 
They had 11 children. And in the summer of 1647, they actually had to bury two of their daughters back to back, one month in between the both of them. The next year, they'd go on to lose their son, Thomas. The next year, they'd go on to lose their son, John. The next year, they'd go on to lose their, their daughter, Elizabeth. 10 out of 11 of John's children would actually die before so, surviving into adulthood. And shortly after marrying, she ended up dying of tuberculosis. John Owen buried 11 of his children and eventually his wife without a single heir to carry on their name. And a branch was cut completely off, a family gone from the world. Or so the world would say. But I believe John Owen's bloodline is one that was thicker than any other. As a matter of fact, to this day, his brothers and sisters are still sitting in this room with us right now. We have a family bond to our brothers and sisters in Christ that is thicker than any, any thread, any branch, completely uncuttable that transcends this life. We're part of the family of God. And these verses Paul gives Timothy gives us principles in how we're to care for one another. It's not just go love people. Because there's, there's a problem, even in our own culture nowadays, it's not just a vague kind of love and whatever you feel is love, you go ahead and do that. But it's an actual practical love, like this is what it looks like to love people. And in these verses, Paul is also preserving some of the created order in a sense. You see, God has established many different governments in the world. We have self-governance. We have commands that we're, we're called to obey. We have family governance. So we have family operations that we govern and decide how things are done inside that. We have church. We have state. And these governments have roles and responsibility in inside one another and alongside one another. And you have to ask the question, well, especially when you come to verse 16, and it talks about how the widows are to be cared for. But if there's an opportunity for a family to come alongside and honor their father and mother, then the church shouldn't be stepping in and taking over that responsibility. Whose job is it to honor your mother and father? The church shouldn't step in and stop you from fulfilling the individual commands. Is it the clergy's job? Is it the elder's job to pray for your enemies? Well, sure, you, you can go to the elders and say, hey, this, this dude at work, John, he made me lose my job. He's a jerk. Could you pray for him? And, and sure, they'll pray, but you also have an individual responsibility to emulate Christ and pray for someone who has wronged you. Just as Jesus came and died for his enemies, us, you, me, you also have a call to love your enemies and serve them in that way and pray for them even though they've wronged you. Is, the church, is it the church's responsibility to disciple your children? Well, we can, have, we can have family ministries. We can come alongside you in discipling your children, but ultimately there's a call for a mother and father in a home to disciple and raise up their children in the way that they should go. And when it comes to honoring your mother and father, it, it, you also have an individual call to honor your mother and father. You can't just send that out to the church and it's, ah, it's their responsibility to care for my mom and dad. Maybe at times they'll help you even financially through benevolence ministries and things like this and give you counsel, but it's ultimately your call to honor your mother and father. And same with giving. Is it the church's responsibility to give on your behalf? That wouldn't sustain itself for very long. <laughs> you see, there are all these things that you're called to do personally within a family, and the church shouldn't come in and step on your toes and stunt your growth in Christ. So when he talks about the, the widows and if there's an opportunity for them to care for, for those inside of a family, the church doesn't want to come in and step on your toes and how you can grow in Christ and stunt your growth in Christ as you practically live out the call to love and serve someone else, to make sacrifices, to care for a family member. And Paul is just making sure that the physical practices we have here on earth mirror the heavenly ones. There are even different roles and responsibilities within the economic trinity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even in his angels, and there's a different level of care that God has for his people and his common grace that he sheds on all the world. And moving into verse 17, Paul transitions here again, speaking of elders. 
And if you look at, if you look at verse 17, chapter 5, verse 17, there's two big things that I'd like to draw our attention to. I think there's one that undoubtedly many eyes are first drawn to when they read this passage and they have a lot of questions. And that would be worthy of double honor. So it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Whoa, what does that mean? Is that, is that like double pay? Do we like get the average of everybody in the church? And whatever that average is, we just pay them the double of whatever that is. Like, what does this mean? Well, <laughs> Rick's like, that would be nice. <laughs> now, uh, J- John Chrysostom, who was a fourth century bishop, this is very early on in church history, he believed that that would mean support and reverence. So there should be a mean where in which we're financially providing them and giving, and there should also be some reverence involved in that as well. John Calvin says that's, that's all good and well. I, I don't want to argue against that. But he did say this might also be some kind of parallel with the previous passages on how the church cares for widows. So maybe whatever honor is giving there, there should be some kind of doubling or increasing of it there. There's different interpretations. Some people do take it to mean a bigger salary, not literally double, but just maybe a little bit more generously. And this has been for all different kinds of things throughout church history, whether this is to care for different kinds of expenses, traveling, uh, visiting the sick, uh, relieving the sick, uh, visiting people in prison, caring for the members, even educational expenses. We want to make sure our clergy clergy are well-equipped, well-versed in the scriptures and know what they're talking about. But whatever you think about that, something that is also important, verse 17, is the very beginning. Let the elders who, there's a condition, rule well. To reflect on this book again, I think this is important. And it speaks to the mission of what we're doing here. In verses, and I'm sorry, in page 33 and 34, another, I'm basically giving you the, the uh, what is it called again? The Spark Notes edition of this book. Now you guys aren't going to read it. Now, but in, in pages 34, 33 and 34, it argues that if you feel no obligation to give to your church, then you should find another one. Crazy thing for someone to say who's in ministry, right? I mean, this is a book on why should I give to my church? And he says, if you don't feel like giving, go. He says, perhaps, leader, that in this book, you think, well, you don't know my church. You don't know this spiritually inept leader that I have and how, how unspiritual he is. He's not very efficient. He's kind of greedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He says, if this is your objection, I have a very simple reply. If you can't trust your church with your money, why on earth are you trusting them with your soul? The reason why he could say something like this in this book, the reason why we would give this book for our members before they step into membership and become a a, a deeper part of the family here at Gospel Community Church, a reason why we keep even going through the money series and say, read this book, and that they would say something so bold is because the kingdom of God is bigger than you, and it's bigger than Gospel Community Church. There have been many counterfeit kingdoms risen up over the course of human history, even in a sense, we're all attempting to build our own kingdoms for ourselves. It's funny, in, in group a couple of weeks ago, Brad, I think the question was, you know, if, if you could buy anything you want, I think without any restrictions on money, that was the question. Pretty much everybody said that they wanted land or a house, correct? And, and most people, I think that especially, you know, when you look at our economic situation, what's the biggest thing that millennials and Gen Z are complaining about? What's well, the cost of housing? We want a house. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to want a house. I mean, this is a promise that God had given his people in the Old Testament was a land. So it's not a bad thing. But in a sense, we're very driven and dedicated to building up our own kingdom, getting and collecting our stuff, creating our own legacy. But all throughout human history, when you look at these kingdoms, even if you look at something like 1 Samuel 8, when the Israelites, they see the other kingdoms, they say, well, we want a king. We want to be like all these other kingdoms. What is Samuel's warning to them? He's like, look, I'll give you guys a king, but he's going to come in. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to take them by force. He's going to put them into commission to serve his kingdom, to build his kingdom. He's going to take your resources, you know, through taxation, not through money. It was, it was different things back then. But 
He's going to build his kingdom by force. He's going to come and take it and grow it that way. Just like the family bloodline that extends beyond John Owen's dead offspring, so does the mission of God on earth outlast all these false kingdoms that have been built up over the centuries. Where's the empire of Rome? Where's the Byzantine empire? Where's the kingdom of Isles and the kingdom of Majorca? These kingdoms have come and gone and will come and go. But for the last 2,000 years, God has been building his kingdom through the church and it will continue on till he returns and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 18, giving us a promise and the commission and work that we do that he will personally see it to completion. And all these kingdoms built by the sword that is resources taken under threat of, under threat of men coming with weapons and taking it, which, I mean... We even have technically in our own nation. I mean, you don't have to pay your taxes. It's not as brutal and barbaric, but they will take you to jail. You don't pay your taxes. Kingdom after kingdom established by the sword will also eventually fall by it. But this is not how God's kingdom works. It's always been upside down. It's always been different than the way we think. God's kingdom is not built by coercion. It's not built by threat of punishment. As he's, you look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says that one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly not under compulsion, not under any kind of threat. For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves those who cheerfully give to the mission of building his kingdom, to the advancement of the gospel in the world. And the truth is God doesn't need you as a partner in ministry. His wealth transcends Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos a billion times over. There is no amount of money you can give to God that he's going to be impressed with and be like, now I can start my ministry. He owns the cattle on a thousand hill, the birds on a thousand hills. Every beast that crawls in the field is his, he says in Psalm 50. He owns it all. But the truth is, there are many facets to the gospel. Not only did he save you from his wrath, not only did he give you the perfect righteousness of his son, but he's also given you a purpose in ministry as a partner in building his kingdom. Paul moves on in verse 18 to talk about uh, practically what this looks like. He says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, the labor deserves its wages. Let's make sure in building that kingdom that the beast of burden that God has yoked for the work of ministry are not having to neglect the gifts that God has given them. You see, as the ox works in the field, this is a principle that Paul is pulling from Deuteronomy 25.4. This is a scriptural principle from the law that he's taking and applying to the work of ministry. As the ox works in the field, it needs food for strength. It makes no sense to push this thing and make it work for you without giving it any kind of incentive in return. It's going to plow the field. It's going to reap some kind of harvest that you will eventually benefit from. And forcing your clergy to live on a tight budget is no more good for the flock than it is to have a starved ox out in the field plowing. It's going to be weak. It's going to have problems. It's going to fall. It's going to need to be replaced. It'll grow worry and burn out. He says the laborer deserves his wages. This is Paul citing Jesus, citing the law. This is a principle echoing all the way from Leviticus up into 1 Timothy. Jesus says in Matthew 10.10 and Luke 10.7, the laborer deserves his wages. And when he says that, it's in the context of sending his disciples out. He sends them expecting that those he would go and preach the gospel to would provide some kind of sustenance for them, whether it was food, clothing, housing at times. So Jesus cites Leviticus 19.13 and Deuteronomy 24.15 when he says the labor deserves his wages. And the book I referenced earlier, if you sincerely believe the labor is not worthy of his wages, then find an elder that is. Find a church that is and roll up your sleeves and get Busy in the work of ministry that God has called you to do in building his kingdom. Don't use the, the, you know, the lazy or incompetent eldership of GCC, if that's your perspective. Don't let it stop you from getting in ministry. Don't let it stop you to contributing to building God's kingdom. In verse 19, if there is cause for concern within the church, 
bring it up. Bring it up. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witness. Again, no one is above God's kingdom. This isn't Rick's kingdom. This isn't Brad's kingdom. This isn't gospel community church kingdom. This is Jesus's kingdom that he's building. And verse 19 says, if there's cause for concern, say something, but do it properly. Do it according to their authority. Do it according to our authority that sits over us and commands the way in which we're to love and serve one another and run the operations of the church. And do not admit a charge without the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is, again, a citation from the law that, and an earthly principle that reflects a heavenly truth. God is a trinity and testifies to himself in a paradoxical way where the Son is able to validate and give witness and testimony to the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Father to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit to the Son and the Father. It goes around in a kind of a paradoxical way. But this heavenly reality is instituted in an earthly way where in which we establish charges between two or three witnesses to come and validate a claim between independent, separate witness and testimony. Paul is not stupid. He knows there could be bad leadership in the church. Why did he write 1 Timothy? Why did he send Timothy? Well, it was false teacher. It was people that were leading people away from Christ with all different kinds of weird divisions. They weren't pointing people to Jesus and what he'd done for us. They were more interested in their own teaching, in their own wisdom, or what they found in the scriptures. And, oh, look at this weird genealogy. And what could possibly mean? And dividing themselves up amongst that way and pushing people out of the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't stupid. He tells us to be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Be innocent, but don't be stupid in who you ordain. And hold them accountable to their ultimate authority, the word of God that should stand over them in all they teach and preach. And I'll close with this. And and this goes back to what I said earlier about being a partner in ministry. Paul closes in 22. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. This is why Paul says not to be hasty. We have a call and commission as Jesus's followers, yes, to fund the ministry of the gospel. But we're also called to guard the ministry of the gospel. We ultimately, the members of the church, determine who gets up and preaches the word of God and remains faithful to the word of God and teaches and preaches in in cohorts and even our our weekly meetings that gather together in the gospel community groups. We want the leaders in those reflecting the gospel out in what we do. As a church, we ensure that when a man steps into the pulpit, he's not just going to give us 10 steps on how to live a healthy marriage. It's not just about five keys to success in life or three things we need to do every day to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But instead, the men we commission to come and preach the ministries that we fund should be pointing us to the one hope we have in this life and the one to come. That although we've been separated through God and our sin and rebellion, that he has sent his son. Without any prompting on our part, without any good behavior from our, on our end, he sent his son to live the life that the law demanded, that we could have never fulfilled ourselves. He then takes our sin upon himself, imparts his righteousness to us so that we've been united to him, and we become that blessed man with which Paul speaks about in Romans 4, whose sins are covered. Who chapter of 1 Corinthians? Glory upon death, which has been described better by no other than the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's the ministry we come together, we take part in, and the ministry we fund. Let's make sure the church is capable of doing this. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that we would be stirred up by your generosity, that this wasn't a kingdom you've come and established by force. Everything about the gospel is so contrary to the way that things are done here on this earth. By force and by power, we take and we build. But Jesus was a humble and lowly servant who stepped aside from his crown, entered into humanity, was a baby, 
dependent upon a human mother and father for sustenance, willingly going and sacrificing himself on the cross, I pray that the gospel, what he's done, would impact the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we live in relationship to one another and our families, and the way we participate in ministry. I pray that we would be generous with our money, with our resources, with our time, with our talents, in service, not under any kind of compulsion or to gain your favor, but because of what you've already done for us. I pray that it would move us and stir us and to take part in building your kingdom, God. We love you and we thank you for allowing us to partner with you, that you've given us a purpose beyond building our own fickle kingdom that'll crumble in 10, 20, 30, 100 years. But you've given us something that will last for eternity. And we thank you for that, God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.